6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Well, we're going to explore the epistles to the Thessalonians, very special series that I think you're going to really enjoy. But of course, before we enter the Word of God at any time, we always do it with prayer. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for the treasure of these epistles by Paul. We pray, Father, that you'd open our hearts and lives to their teachings, that we might apprehend these incredible gifts that you've uh, put here for us. So we just commit ourselves and this coming time into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our coming King. Amen. Well, indeed, we're going to explore a couple of the epistles that are probably uh, among the most exciting in the New Testament. And obviously, the epistles of Paul are profound. He's probably the greatest mind that ever walked the earth. And if you've studied our epistle of the Romans, I think you'll have an appreciation for that. But these particular uh, epistles or letters are among the earliest of all of them. And they're the most significant eschatological epistles in the New Testament. And for that reason alone, it's one that you want to embrace and study carefully and really understand. So we're going to introduce the first of these two letters, the first epistle to the Thessalonians. And as I pointed out, this is regarded by many experts, authors, as the earliest of Paul's epistles. The most amazing thing here, though, is to realize that the things that these two epistles review are things that Paul taught them in his first three weeks, uh, or I should say their first three weeks, uh, as a church. He went there, spent in a neighborhood of about three, less than a month, and then later writes them these epistles, which remind them of things that he taught them while he was among them. And what's amazing here is some of the doctrines that are here are the most fundamental in Christian uh, uh, belief. And so don't be surprised as we get into some very, very interesting topics here. But before we get into that, I think it's useful for us to review the relevant sections of the book of Acts. And we'll just excerpt some things that you may have already studied in our uh, package called Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. So, you know, Paul was born in Tarsus. That was the principal city of the Roman province of Cilicia in in, uh, southern Asia Minor. Now, Asia there is not as we think of Asia Far East. Asia there is the Roman province of Asia Minor, which you and I think of more or less as Turkey. And uh, he was born a free Roman citizen with full rights as a citizen of Tarsus. And that causes some real surprises to the Romans, by the way. When Paul quotes from the Old Testament, he quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done about three centuries earlier, called the Septuagint, and usually abbreviated as LXX, the Roman numerals for 70, which is the uh, a commonly used abbreviation for the Septuagint. And he was raised by strict Jewish uh, parents, and he was by uh, choice a Pharisee. 
In fact, he even studied under Gamaliel, who was the greatest of the Pharisees, right in Jerusalem. And so the word Saul commemorates another Benjamite king, namely uh, Saul, the king of the Old Testament. It was Christianized from the Hebrew Shaul, uh, which means ask for. But Paul adopts the term Paul, which is his Roman name, which actually means little. It's a form of humility that he adopts there. Now the theme of this first letter we're going to explore is to confirm the foundational truths that they'd been taught. And that's what makes it so surprising to discover that in those foundational truths is this controversial concept called the harpazo. And we'll be getting into that uh, in the next few sessions. He then exhorts them to personal holiness. He's going to comfort them concerning the departed loved ones. and that fact, In fact, that's what gives rise to that fourth chapter that we'll take so much interest in. And of course, he reminds them all the way through of their blessed hope, the return of Jesus Christ. And that's a topic that was very central to Paul's teaching. And tragically, it isn't as central as it should be among the church today. In fact, it's shrouded by controversy in many areas. So let's take a look at the book, uh, book of Acts and Paul's, uh, the, the part of Acts that particularly focuses on Paul. But the book of Acts, of course, we sometimes call Luke volume 2. Volume 1 being his gospel and volume 2 being what we call the book of Acts. But our interest here will start by uh, uh, Saul, a, a Jew born and Roman citizen, raised in Tarsus. He's educated in Jerusalem as a Pharisee under Gamaliel. And then he holds coats while even Stephen was uh, stoned, uh, executed. And he becomes a violent persecutor of the early church. But of course, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, uh, he encounters Jesus himself and is converted and becomes uh, one of the primary thrusts of the early church, as is obvious by both his travels and, his resu- and his, the fruit that he born, and of course, why his letters are so treasured, uh, even in, in, among the early church there. Uh, he visits Ananias, his blindness is healed, he's baptized, then he stays in Damascus, which he spends, but then he spends three years in Arabia. We don't know much about that other than it's alluded to in Acts 9, and uh, it's also alluded to in his letter to the Galatians. So in those three years, he apparently was taught and apparently uh, uh, got revelations by the Lord himself. And so he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. He, after, uh, three years after his conversion, he is forced to flee Damascus in a basket. And then he goes to see Peter. Uh, Barnabas introduces him to the suspicious believers. The believers, they don't trust him because they remember him as the champion persecutor. And they're very cautious in trying to, to really accepting the fact that he's now been converted. But he talks with Peter and James, and after two weeks, he's smuggled out of Damascus, taken to Caesarea, and then ultimately goes back to Tarsus, his hometown. And he spends 10 years in Tarsus, during which he visits Cilicia and Syria. But he's still unknown to the believers in Judea in large measure. But Barnabas brings uh, Saul, or one, the one we know as Paul, uh, to Antioch. And they teach together as partners for about a year there in Antioch. And Antioch becomes really a center for the, Gentile, the growth of the Gentile church in the, in the New Testament. And Saul, Barnabas, and Titus bring famine relief money f- for Judea from Antioch. They meet privately with the church leaders who finally acknowledge Saul's ministry to the Gentiles. He's beginning to earn their acceptance and confidence, if you will. That leads to what we call the first missionary journey, and that covers Acts 13 and 14. They visit Salamis, Paphos, Antioch, and Pisidia. Don't confuse that Antioch with the one in Syria. 
the one in Syria is the key one, of course, and then Iconium. And then Lystra and Derby, where he's even left for dead, he's stoned and so forth. And then there's a return journey. So just to profile that briefly, Saul and Barnabas are sent out by the Antioch church with John Mark, this young man, with them. We're going to talk a little bit more about him as we go. They go to Paphos there, and they encounter a false prophet, a friend of the governor, and Barjesus is struck blind, and the governor becomes a believer out of that. Interesting adventures, but they finally go, of course, to um, Cilicia. John Mark, at this point, leaves and returns to Jerusalem. And that's going to lead to a dispute later on, because uh, Paul regards him as a quitter. He didn't hang in there with him. And he later regains Paul's confidence. But there's a big dispute between Paul and Barnabas over that issue. But anyway, Paul preaches, and the jealous Jews stir up opposition. They stay a long time, but a Gentile plot on their lives forces them on. And they go then, of course, to Lystra, where Paul heals a cripple. And there they're hailed as gods. But enemies arrive from Antioch and Iconium, and they're almost killed. They're left for dead, actually. And they flee to Derby, and they're more... More disciples run along the way. And they return the way they came, revisiting those places, encouraging the young churches. And they report everything to the church at Antioch. Now we get to a very pivotal chapter in the book of Acts called the Council in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of controversy uh, erupts throughout the Jewish Christians as to what obligations are incumbent upon the Gentile believers. Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep the Mosaic law? And Paul and Barnabas and others seek the elders in Jerusalem to resolve this whole issue. Peter also testifies very colorfully there. I love the way Peter puts it. He says, Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers or we were able to bear? Because the Jews themselves admitted they couldn't keep the rules. They couldn't earn their way there. The rules were there just to show their need for a savior in effect. But in any case, uh, why put all these burdens on the Gentiles? And that's the big debate. But I love the way he says it. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Do you get the reversal there? In other words, it's, he doesn't say that they'll be as saved as we are. He turns it around the other way. We might become as saved as they are. I mean, it's very, very interesting, uh, eloquent uh, presentation by uh, Peter. But there are two problems that lurk behind this big debate. The first one, of course, is what does a Gentile have to do to be saved? And they resolve that one. But there's a second issue that also lurks behind. You see, if a Gentile does not have to become a Jew to be saved, what's to become of Israel? What is these thousands of years of history deal with? Are they all, uh, is it all put aside? And James, the half-brother of Jesus, who's chairing the proceedings, quotes from the Old Testament to nail this one down. Notice what he says in Acts 15, verse 14 and following. He says, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, Simon, in other words, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. In fact, it all started in Acts chapter 10 with the famous thing in Cornelius and the sheet and the vision and all of that. Anyway, but then he goes on, James goes on to quote, he says, And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. And he then is quoting from Amos chapter 9. He says, God says there, after this I will return. Hey, that's a remarkable thing for God to say, because in order to return, he must have left, huh? After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, and so forth. Notice we're talking about the tabernacle of David, not the temple of Solomon. We're talking about a palace. We're talking about 
the kingdom, what you and I would call the millennium, is what the allusion is here. It's interesting that this is confirmed in the New Testament. It's not an Old Testament thing alone. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's nailing it here in Acts 15. That's going to be very important as we get a perspective of what God is doing in the Scriptures. So, so they resolve this. They argue there and, and they declare, they agree that Gentiles should abstain from idols. They should abstain from fornication and abstain from things strangled in blood. But notice what they don't include. They do not include the Mosaic Law. They don't talk about Shabbat or Sabbath and those kinds of things. There's no commitment to Mosaic practices. That was distinctive for the Jews themselves. The Gentiles don't inherit that yoke upon them. And they don't, they don't deal with the ceremonial laws, and uh, they don't deal with circumcision. In other words, you can be a Christian without being circumcised. That, that's a shock, of course, to the Jewish mind. But the, and the issue of Israel's identity is dealt with, and Paul d- develops that for you in Romans 9, 10, and 11 which are Israel's past, present, and future profiled. And so God is not finished with Israel. They have a manifest destiny. In fact, the most fantastic part of their history is yet ahead of them. Subject for another time. But then we get to the second missionary journey from Acts 15 to 18 there. They visit Philippi, Thessalonica, and that's why we're reviewing this, to get a perspective of the Thessalonian church. Then they went from there to Berea, and then to Athens, and then to Corinth. And it's from Corinth that Paul will write letters back to Thessalonica that we're going to be studying in this series here. And he goes from there to Ephesus, and then back home. So it's from Corinth to uh, the letters go to Thessalonica. The first Thessalonians being the one that we're exploring here. So Paul and Barnabas argue over taking Mark to revisit Galatia, and Barnabas takes Mark with him to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas to Galatia. So the two split up, Paul and Barnabas split up, and now there's four rather than two preaching. So God even uses that uh, disagreement to help spread the gospel. And so at Lystra, Paul asks Timothy to join him. That's where he picks up Timothy. Uh, he becomes a protege and a very, very prominent figure in Paul's travels. They publish the decisions of the Jerusalem Council. Paul goes to Bithynia, or he tries to go to Bithynia, I should say. But the Holy Spirit blocks him from that. And it's that night that he has a vision of a European person. A Macedonian urges him to come over to Europe. So he hasn't been across yet. He's, that's, this is what's calling him. So we, he uh, has this vision. Many scholars believe the Macedonian that's beckoning him in his vision is none other than Luke. Because that's also where they pick up Luke, by the way. Suddenly we find the, ter- the, the first personal pronoun goes from I to we in the text. And we pick up on that. So they sail for Macedonia. Luke, is, uh, Luke joins them there. And so Paul delivers a girl medium from the evil spirit. The owners protest and all of that. He's flogged and imprisoned and freed by an earthquake. Then the jailer's converted and so forth. Big, big deal there in Philippi. And Paul's going to make reference to that with the Thessalonians. So then they travel from Philippi to Thessalonica. That's Acts 17. Very important chapter for us here. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia Segunda. It was founded in 315 BC, about three centuries earlier, by Cassandra, the son-in-law of Philip of Macedon, and one of Alexander's four key generals who named it after his wife Thessalonica, which is the half-sister of Alexander the Great, for, for you history buffs. It's a very strategic location. It, was the natu- it had a natural harbor at the head of the Thymaic Gulf, situated on Via Ignatia, the main route between Rome and the east. So it's very, very strategically placed. And it's interesting how Paul 
always takes advantage of these major, major, uh, these strategic uh, centers of influence. Uh, it was also the most populous town of Macedonia, and it was almost, for practical purpose, like the capital of Greece and Illyricum and Macedonia. About 200,000 people, which was a big city in those days, and Cicero was in exile there back in 58 BC, so famous names are associated with this place. Thessalonica was almost made the capital of the world, and it's presently the second most important in Greece. Antony and Octavius, he's the one that becomes in the future Augustus, uh, were there after their victory at Philippi. In gratitude for their cooperation in the struggle against Cassius and Brutus, Thessalonica was made a free city like Athens. That was a big deal in those days. That means there were no Roman soldiers stationed in it. The government was, government was put in the hands of the People's Assembly, and from whom the politarchs, which are like magistrates, were chosen. And a kingdom preaching would make them fearful of losing their privileges of free status. In other words, to the extent Paul was effective at preaching the kingdom, the average citizen would get nervous because they were jealous, they were afraid of losing this unique free status with the Romans. A little background item there. Acts 17 is a key chapter for us to understand as we approach these letters. In verse 2 in chapter 3, we learn that there were, Paul was there for three Sabbaths. In other words, he was there basically for a period of about three weeks. It's interesting that he preached entirely from the Old Testament scriptures, obviously, and yet he preaches the rapture and the second coming of Christ from the Old Testament. We're going to talk more about that as we get into those topics. A few verses later, about verse 4, we discover that these are probably mostly Gentile converts because we notice there's an absence of Old Testament references in the Thessalonian letters. And there's also emphasis on idolatry, so both of those are suggestive that the Thessalonians, were, the church there was primarily Gentile converts. There was a riot, of course, that was organized, Jason post-bond for Paul. And as in Philippi, they were vulnerable to the charge of treason due to the recent expulsion of Jews from Rome. So they're vulnerable. They're an oppressed minority just by being Jewish. And Paul and Silas flee to Berea, and that gives rise to our trademark verse, by the way, because he's going to say in chapter 11, verse 11 of chapter 17, speaking of the Bereans, he'll say they were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, but they searched the scriptures daily to prove these things where they were so. So the Thessalonians were very welcoming. They converted. But Paul really throws a compliment to the Bereans because they were from Missouri. Show me. Prove it to me. That was their attitude. And that was about 50 miles away, about a three-day journey, if you will, from Thessalonica. That's where we get our trademark passage that served us for four decades here. But in any case, the point is the Bereans really verified what Paul was teaching from the Old Testament prophecies. And that's an emphasis that we all should emulate, if you will. But they have this, the big riot there in Thessalonica, and they leave secretly for Berea. They get a better reception in Berea, but the mob stirred up by the... There were Jews from Thessalonica came and stirred up riots. The point that the book of Acts makes, that Luke makes in the book of Acts, is that in each of these places where there's a riot, it's the Jews precipitating the riot not the Gentiles. And that's very important to the Roman authorities. That's why many people believe that the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts were necessary documentation that were associated with Paul's appeal to Rome, which comes later. There is that suggestive evidence of that. Anyway, Paul then leaves Berea for Athens. He leaves Silas and Timothy behind. 
we're going to see three key names in these letters, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And so Paul, when he leaves Thessalonica, he leaves his two partners back there, and he heads for Athens. He speaks in Athens in this famous speech at Mars Hill, or Oropicus is, is the other equivalent term. And it's the court of the judges. And, and he, but notice Paul always begins his speech where the people are. He doesn't quote, these are Greeks. He doesn't quote from the Old Testament. He quotes from Greek poets. And now you notice that they have, they're committed to idolatry. Their uh, experts think there were like something like 30,000 different gods that were represented in Athens. And Paul points and says, you must obviously be extremely devout. In other words, extremely God-fearing because you've got all these gods that you fear. An interesting point of view that we often overlook in our own uh, conduct, if you will. And so he picks one of these. He finds one that's called the altar the, uh, to the unknown God. And he picks up on that to build his case. And he says, we are his offspring. Let me tell you about this unknown God. And he goes on with that. And he quotes from an astronomical poem by Aretas. That was a Greek countryman of Paul's, but although a predecessor of his by about three centuries. And he, speaks, he also quotes from a religious hymn of the Cleanthes of Troas, a contemporary of Aratus. In another document, he's going to quote Meander in 1 Corinthians. So he, interesting that he was, see, he was a brilliant, he had a great education from the Greek side, not only from the Jewish side. He actually was a very unique individual, a brilliant mind, but also deep background in both of those different cultures. Anyway, after Athens, he departs for Corinth. And that's interesting to us because it's from Corinth that he will write the, the Thessalonian letter. Silas and Timothy come from Thessalonica and bring him news that alarms him. And so that's when he writes the Thessalonian letters. He spends almost two years there in Corinth, despite the Jewish opposition. But during those two years, he writes 1 Thessalonians, and we'll be studying that one, and following that, 2 Thessalonians. Each of them are focused on what you and I would call eschatological issues. They deal with the end times. So 1 Thessalonians were written from Corinth to in, in dealing with problems that the Thessalonians had, but they really build upon what he taught them in, his fir- in the first three weeks of their, their Christian walk, which I think is provocative. Anyway, he then sails to Ephesus, resisted those that wanted him to stay longer, and he go- then travels back to Antioch, back to Caesarea, back to Jerusalem. And that gets us to chapter, uh, you know, in chapter 18 focuses on the year, two years in Corinth. And he writes both of the Thessalonians probably within a few weeks of having visited there. Timothy had been left in Philippi, joins Paul in Berea, and travels with him to Athens. Paul then sends him back to Thessalonica, and the first letter is in response to Timothy's rejoining Paul and giving him a report on how they're doing. And that's what leads Paul to writing the letter we're going to explore here, 1 Thessalonians. It initiates the New Testament in the minds of many scholars, and written less than 20 years from Christ's resurrection. And some believe that Galatians might be another earlier letter. There's some different points of view on that one. It's interesting that every chapter in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now the first three chapters of this five-chapter book are going to be sort of personal counsel. But the last two chapters will be very practical implications of what he teaches them there. So uh, Timothy and Titus had just arrived from Thessalonica. They brought supplies from the Macedonian churches to supply Paul's need, as the church in Philippi did once and again when Paul was in Thessalonica. So before Timothy and Silas came to Corinth, Paul had to work steadily at his trade as a tent maker with Aquila and Priscilla. 
So he earns his own keep. He doesn't want to be a burden on them. He doesn't want that to, to cloud his message. So he tries as hard to, to be as self-sufficient as possible. He make, he'll make reference to that. Turns out he could only preach in the synagogue on Sabbaths, but the rich doors from Macedonia released his hands, and Paul devoted himself to the Word, it says. But Timothy and Titus brought news of serious trouble in Thessalonica, and some of the disciples had misunderstood Paul's preaching about the second coming of Christ, and they had quit work. The rapture's coming, so they stopped work. In other words, they, they overreacted, as we might think. And we're, they're making quite a, a disturbance about this. They were guilty of what many people accuse us as being pre-trib, pre-millennial perspectives that, that we just put our feet on the desk and coast. Well, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to occupy, but that's, that's partly what Paul is going to be dealing with here, plus some misunderstandings of the end times that he's going to clarify. Key point to, as we approach this to understand that he touched upon these eschatological issues during his very brief stay, his first, about a month in Thessalonica. Now, the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica charged it against Paul and Silas to the Politarchs that they had preached another king, King Jesus, in place of Caesar. They promoted that idea as a way of getting Paul and his gang in trouble. Paul had preached Jesus as king of a spiritual kingdom, which the Jews misrepresented to the Politarchs as treason against Caesar, as the Sanhedrin had done to Pilate about Jesus. The same thing that the Sanhedrin told Pilate, that's sort of the same flavor. They're using that to get the Roman authorities against their adversaries here. And clearly Paul had said that Jesus was coming to come again according to his own promise before his ascension. So there's substance to what they said in the sense that Paul was preaching a second coming of Christ. Now, some asserted that Paul said Jesus was coming to come right away and drew their own inference about, for idleness and also fanaticism. And that's the same things going on today. We want to guard against that. You don't want to set dates. We want to, uh, it's our blessed hope that we aspire to, but at the same time, we should be effectively, efficiently, productively being stewards in the meantime. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Thank you.